0: Well, about once every three years, I have trouble with my voice, so tonight might be the shortest service that we have ever been in. This morning, I don't know if you remember, but it kind of just trailed off there at the end, and uh, I, don't know what, I don't know what happened, but it happened. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew 13, beginning in verse 53. We're going to uh, sort of look... At the power of unbelief tonight, let me set up our text. There are eight parables in Matthew 13, and we've gone through each of those one at a time, and we've looked at them and explained them and talked about them. At the end of these parables that Jesus taught his disciples, their training was over. That was it. He had been training them for three and a half years, and when it got down to the very uh, end of these parables, uh, he was about to send them out. Jesus' use of parables was primarily in response to the rejection that he had had from the Jews. The same stories that clarified truth for his followers, it sort of uh, confused an obscured truth for those who didn't believe in him. So these parables are very important, and uh, that's why we've taken so much time with them. As far as preparation of the disciples was concerned, the two most important ones that we have talked about are the parable of the sower and then the parable of the wheat and the tares. And I want us to kind of think about those for a moment tonight. The story of the sower made clear that some people would believe the gospel, but most people wouldn't. Now, think back for a minute. How many people have you witnessed to in your life? And out of that number, what percentage has trusted the Lord? Has it been 50% or? or 10% or 1%. You know, some folks that are real, real good at that uh, might uh, have 50% of the people that they present the gospel to uh, hear it and accept it and become a believer. But that's very, very rare. The vivid story of the wheat and the tares made clear that the saved and the unsaved are going to live side by side For a long time. And that, of course, is what's happening today. Uh, We have uh, in our community, uh, you know, say from 75 to 301 and north a bit and down south a bit, we have a lot of Christians. But my guess is we have 75% that don't go to church. So as you think about that, we are our next-door neighbors. Uh, You know, I notice on the street where Cindy and I live that uh, on Sunday morning, very few cars move. Uh, They're pretty much there. We've been trying to kind of reach out and get to know some of our neighbors. But, you know, we're living in a day where Christianity is being bashed on every side, the news media, the politicians, the other countries around the world—if anybody speaks up about Christ, boy, they are. Immediate. They sometimes they just shut the mic off. Uh, they don't want you to hear anything about that. And of course, uh, there are so many critical people related to our faith. It's unbelievable the power of belief is attested through scripture and i could have made a much longer list but uh, you know as you read the bible there are literally hundreds of people that believed and were saved and did mighty work for the lord jesus abraham believed and became the father of a great nation and the father of the Israelites. Uh, Israel believed, and they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. It was just an unbelievable m- miracle that God performed. David believed and was enabled to slay Goliath. And you take a guy that big, and you take a little sling... And you get that thing going, and I mean, God's got to be all throughout that in order for that to actually happen. Naaman believed, and God uh, healed him of his leprosy. Daniel believed, and the lions couldn't get him. They were standing right beside him, but they couldn't get him. Two blind men believed and received their sight and their salvation. Jairus believed, and his daughter was brought back to life. The Philippian jailer and his household believed, and the whole group received eternal life because of their faith in the Lord. And, of course, that list could go on and on and on and on. Just as faith has the the power to bring forgiveness of sins and eternal life, Unbelief has the power to hold a person in their sins and under condemnation. Just as belief has the power to bring eternal happiness and joy and peace and glory in God's presence, unbelief has the power to bring eternal sorrow and eternal pain and eternal anguish in God's absence. One time, I heard a theology professor say, "The worst thing about hell is that God is not there." You know, I don't know uh, what hell's going to be like or about. We have some things in Scripture about it, but the worst thing is going to be that God isn't going to be there. You know, I know we believe in His omnipresence, but He has chosen. Uh, to withdraw himself from that particular place. As the parable of the sower illustrates, most of the response that Jesus faced and that the disciples faced were from people that didn't believe. Some kind of hung around for a while and some followed for a little while, but most of them fell away. Whether unbelief comes from the heart that was beaten hard by sin You remember the road that we talked about that was walked on all the time and the the seed couldn't uh, penetrate the hard road? And then there's the rocky heart that's covered by a shallow layer of superficial belief. You remember the uh, part of the land that had the rocks with just a little bit of soil on it? And then there's the thorny heart whose worldliness chokes out the truth of the gospel. There are so many worldly people today. I go to the hospital a lot. Uh, Some days I I go to two or three hospitals. I see the folks uh, next door over here just about every day. And as I go in, I hear all kinds of things. You know, I am visiting with the person in this bed and the person in the other bed are saying some unbelievable things. You know, if I was real sick, I'd be saying real nice things (laughs) because I would want God to be looking at me with all favor rather than cussing and carrying on and arguing and griping and fussing and all that. Well, all unbelief is a matter of will. You remember this morning I, I talked about we all have a will that's ours. We get to demonstrate our will. We're not puppets on a string. We're not robots. Uh, We have free will, and we can exert our free will in the world in which we live. Unbelief is a choice. You choose whether to believe or not to believe. That's the choice that you have to make. Every single person, somewhere along in their life, makes that choice. And, of course, the ramifications of that are, are just unbelievable. I mean, the the consequence lasts for an eternity. So it's critically, critically important. Some people say no to God in spite of all the evidence that is right in front of them. Like in that day, Jesus was going around doing all these miracles that nobody else could do, nobody else had ever done. He was bringing people back to life, He was healing the lepers. He was speaking, healing to people that weren't even right in front of him. I mean, all kinds of things. And everybody knew it. And yet some people said, well, no, what about this and what about that? You know, what it really was, they just didn't want to believe. They did not want to follow Jesus. They, They didn't want to commit their life to him. They wanted to go about their life as they had along the way. Look at verse 53. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. Jesus had been ministering in and around Capernaum uh, for about a year. That was the longest he'd been anywhere uh, in his ministry to this point. But the majority of the people there uh, saw and heard But eventually, the vast majority of them fell away. They they were not persistent in their faith. They manifested their rejection, either because of some uh, blasé indifference or because of direct opposition to what Jesus was saying. After Jesus finished the parables of the kingdom, the scripture says he departed from there. He left there. Because the Lord had spent more time there than anywhere else, Capernaum was especially guilty of rejecting the Lord. You know, one of the things about this area, uh, there are a lot of places in the United States that have thousands and thousands of people and not one church of any kind. Now, I've never looked in the phone book and counted up all the churches in, in our immediate area here. But there's a whole bunch of them. So everybody's had an opportunity. You know, it's, it's not like we're not here. It's not like we're visible. It's not like uh, you know, nobody knows where we are or how to find us. That's, that's not the case. Jesus uh, rebuked the folks at Capernaum. Because they basically heard, listened, watched, and then fell away. He said, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? It's, um, it's sort of like a curse on the city. Uh, it says, after they said that, he left. The city's doom was imminent. Jesus never went there again. He, he went through it a couple of times just to get somewhere else, but he never really went to Capernaum, Capernaum again. He never wanted to be there after that. He had come into the city and demonstrated power that could only have been from God. It was things that had never been done before. Everybody knew that, yet the people would not have him as Lord. Many marveled. Some criticized, but few believed. Now, Capernaum's opportunity was passed. He entered, (coughs) Capernaum entered into a decline, into oblivion, from which that city has never recovered. If you go there, even in today, I mean, think of all the 2,000 plus years. There's nobody there. There are no homes there. There's no people there. That city was cursed. Today, the city is in virtually the same state of ruin, without homes and without people. The last synagogue that was built in Capernaum was erected over the floor of the one where Jesus taught. It was decorated with various animals and various mythological gods. So think how far they had descended into paganism. Having rejected the true God, the people were at the mercy of false gods. Now there's all kinds of people today right around us that worship false gods. What percentage of the people around you, do you think, uh, look up uh, what happens to their sign on that particular day. If they're a Pisces or a Sagittarius or whatever they are, and they look that up, and then that's the way they live their life in response to that. There are a lot of people today worshiping at false altars. Just paganism. That's all it is. It's just paganism through and through. Let's look at verse 54. And coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in the synagogue so that they became astonished. And they said, where did this man get his wisdom and these marvelous, miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary Mary? And his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, are his sisters, are they not all right here with us? Where did this man get these things that he has? And they took offense at Jesus. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now, the hometown was Nazareth, as you know. Jesus goes there. That's where Mary and Joseph went to live after returning from Egypt with their baby child. It was to Nazareth that Jesus returned after his baptism and after he had the temptations Uh, out in the wilderness. And we learn from Luke that the response to him was the same as it was on the first occasion. Very few believed. Luke reports that after the wilderness temptations, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. In other words, he could do anything. He could do anything. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Jesus had been away only a short while, hadn't been long. He was still known. I mean, people would see him and they'd say, you know, that's the guy that grew up here. He's he's a carpenter. Most of the people in that town knew him. They'd seen him grow up. It was his custom to be at the synagogue on the Sabbath, the crowd assembled on that particular Sunday or Saturday. Uh, it was essential the same as it had essentially the same as it had been for years and years. But Jesus wasn't the same. Jesus was different. He was radically different. After the baptism, after the temptations. He was filled with the Spirit of God. During the intervening time, he had begun his ministry. He had suddenly become famous because he could heal people of anything. It didn't matter what it was. He could heal anything. Because from the onset of his work, news about him had spread throughout the surrounding communities. So whenever he was in the area, people came that way because Obviously, they wanted to be healed of whatever they had. I mean, who wouldn't go? If, if you heard in Ruskin there was somebody that could heal anything, wouldn't you go on over there and get him to heal your whatever? I mean, sure you would. I mean, we'd get in line real quick. Well, he was praised by everybody. After Jesus stood and read a familiar messianic text. Now, this is real important. In fact, I I don't know if you have your Bible tonight. Don't do this in the the pew Bible. But um, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. If you have your own Bible, turn to that and mark it. This is the Messianic text that all Jews knew. This was that passage that's looking forward. Looking forward to the time of Jesus' uh, coming. Well, uh, Jesus got up and he read it. This is the text that he chose. These are the verses that he read. He handed the scroll to the synagogue attendant and he sat down to comment on the reading that he had just made from the scrolls. Now, there was an order in the synagogue. You would stand up to read the scripture and then you would sit down. Everybody was sitting down. And you would discuss and in his interpretation, whoever the speaker was. You would discuss uh, the text that had just been read. As he began to interpret this text, Jesus said this. And this is the line of demarcation. I mean, this is the very point where Jesus put it all out on the table. Jesus said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they they didn't know what he was talking about. They thought, well, this is a messianic text. What, What do you mean it's fulfilled today? Jesus said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he's looking right at them. At first, the people had no idea that Jesus was referring to himself. Knowing the people's praise was based merely on uh, their uh, recognition of his popularity and his power and the miracles that he could do. Jesus began then to expose their real motives. He began to preach at them. Have you ever been to church where you felt like the preacher wasn't your friend? He was preaching at you, you know, and was kind of beating you down. I've been to some services like that. Well, he'd done all these miracles, performed all these things in Capernaum, and the folks in Nazareth wanted that to happen there. And here Jesus gets up, and he doesn't entertain them. He doesn't uh, give them the benefit uh, that they want. Uh, He talks to them about being convicted of their sin. You can imagine how well that went over. And he gave them a message of salvation by Jesus, the Messiah. From Jesus... Second, in similar encounter with his former neighbors in Nazareth, we learn a very, uh, well, at least four uh, matters of unbelief. Tonight, uh, I'm just going to cover the first one. We're running out of time. Look at verse 54. And coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogue so that they became astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom? Where did he get this miraculous power that he has demonstrated? Now, the point I'm trying to make here is that unbelief blurs the obvious. You know, some things are obvious. You can just look at them and and you know what it is. Well, what blurs that? Unbelief. Unbelief can blur what you're seeing. How could the people for the second time reject Jesus as the Messiah when it was so obvious, so very obvious that these things at which they marveled marveled, could only happen by the power of God? Only God could do it. And Jesus was doing it. You know, two plus two is four. Obviously, And and they didn't understand it all. They hadn't figured it all out. But obviously God was in this. I mean, there's no question about that. I mean, when you touch somebody and they can hear instantly, you touch somebody and they can see instantly, you touch a lame person, they can walk instantly. You know, there's something of God going on. And the people were watching this and they said, what's going on here? What's going on here? Unbelief blurs the obvious. Jesus had not studied in any of the famous rabbinical schools. He didn't have a Ph.D. in theology. He didn't have an M.D. from one of the leading seminaries. He didn't have uh, any formal training beyond what the ordinary Jewish man in Nazareth had. He'd been there just like they had been there. And they had heard the uh, scribes and the Pharisees talk and teach. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem marveled at Jesus. They said, how did this guy learn so much so quick? How did that happen? It's unbelievable. He's never been educated. He's he's not a, a learned person. How did he get it? They just couldn't understand it. Despite the absence of traditional credentials. Jesus had an understanding that was persuasive. When he talked, what he said made sense. When he talked, what he said had the ring of God to it. It was beyond anything the scribes and the Pharisees, the Essenes had taught. It was beyond any of that. He was giving to them an interpretation of scripture that they never heard before. Despite the absence of those credentials, his spiritual and moral wisdom was so true and so profound, it could not be refuted by anybody. By anybody. The smartest scribes and Pharisees there were came up and, and tried to debate with him, and he always put them in their place. He knew more about it than they did. And they just couldn't believe it because they had seen him grow up. He grew up right there. Things were changing. Those who heard and saw Jesus did not reject him for lack of evidence, but in spite of overwhelming evidence. There was overwhelming evidence. They did not reject him because he lacked the truth, but because they rejected the truth. They denied the light because they preferred the darkness. Yes, amen. You know, a lot of people want to stay in the darkness. They've been there, they like it. It's what they like. Did you ever see that movie, Men in Black? Uh, do, you remember, do you remember? Did you see that movie? That was a great movie. I just love that movie. I've watched it about three or four times on TV. There's a place in, in that where at night, the night people come out. Do you remember that? And, uh, the, you know, and if you look at them real carefully, you notice there's something strange about these people that are out real, real late at night. You know, uh, some people prefer the darkness. And they like to do the things that they can get away with at night. They don't want to be out in the sun. They don't want everybody to see what they're doing. They want to do it under the secrecy of darkness. The person who has heard many presentations of the gospel but continually asks for more evidence is is simply revealing his obstinacy against trusting in Christ as his Lord and Savior. He wants more evidence, more evidence, more evidence. Never satisfied. I have witnessed to people for hours at a time and sit there and come at them from 89 different angles. And basically what they would always say is, well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. So I'd say something else. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. You know, I'm not sure I believe that. You know, I don't know about that. A lot of my friends don't believe that. You know, and on and on and on. What it is, they just don't want to believe. They prefer the darkness to the light. That's what it is. As Jesus explained in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. They don't need more evidence. They just need some faith. That's what they need. The person who does not accept the light from God, he already has so much before him that he just doesn't want to respond to the light that has been given. He wants to live in darkness. Some people simply do not want to believe. And your heart breaks because you realize the end story of that situation. I, I wasn't here last Sunday, but I heard uh, Dr. Laidlaw did, went through the four spiritual laws with everybody. I I was hoping this morning that somebody would walk down the aisle that one of our members had led to Jesus. Ross and I had talked about that on the phone. Incidentally, I just talked to him about a half an hour ago, and he said that he and Rose had been in tremendous rain. They had gone up to North Carolina and were driving down to Tennessee, and it was about to flood them out. And uh, I didn't say what I was thinking. Uh, but uh, they're, they're fine. They're okay. Well, tonight, uh, if there's anybody in the house that would like to trust in Christ, if there's anybody in the house that would like to come and join our church, the doors are wide open. And we want you to come. We want you to join. We want you to grow in your faith. We want you to have a loving, godly family. That's what every single person in America needs, is a loving, godly family. If you're here tonight and you don't have that, then just let go of the pew and come on up. I'm going to stand down here at the front. We're going to sing a hymn. If the Lord leads, you come. Let's stand together as we sing.